Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Hope you are having a fruitful Lenten season so far. And with that in mind, we're going to be looking at the reality of temptation in our lives, what it is, where it comes from, and what to do about it. Also, we will unpack the Sunday Gospel for the second week of Lent and continue with part two of my Ten Commandments of Catholic Bible Study. You may remember that Last week, we finished with the fifth commandment of Catholic Bible study, which is, thou shalt choose thy Bible wisely. And I promised at that time to reveal my personal litmus test when evaluating a Catholic translation of the Bible. Well, as I mentioned last time, there's two broad types of biblical translations known as formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. Formal equivalence strives to translate the words of the text as closely as possible, while dynamic equivalence is an attempt to make the meaning of the text more intelligible, even if that means using altogether different words. But even when the translation is as formal as possible, it's well to remember the old Italian axiom, i traditori sono traditori, translators are traitors. Because even when attempting a formal translation, it's not really possible to render one language word for word into another. And as soon as a, a translator is faced with making a choice, then his translation necessarily becomes an interpretation. And comparing different English versions of the Bible can reveal something about what's behind those choices and help you evaluate them. I said last week I have a, a litmus test for this purpose, which is the wedding at Cana, John uh, chapter 2, where Mary intercedes for the poor bride and groom, and, and verses 3 through 5 specifically. She tells Jesus they have no wine. Jesus replies, literally, woman, what is that to me and to thee? Now that's a Hebrew idiom expressed in Greek and then translated into English, and needless to say, it loses something in the process. And as happens elsewhere in the Gospel of John especially, we have here an expression in an ancient language that can be understood in more than one way. It can either mean a disagreement between two parties with different perspectives, or it can mean the free consent of one party to another. So, so how to translate it? Well, consider Mark one twenty four, where the demons in a possessed man use a similar expression. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, the demons aren't happy, but as we know, they obey Jesus and leave the man because they recognize who he is, the Holy One of God. In John chapter 2, Jesus calls Mary woman, and some would rather impiously suggest that this term is, is derogatory or dismissive or even represents a rebuke. Well, on the contrary, Jesus calls Mary woman precisely because he knows who Mary is the woman of Genesis 3.15, the woman whose offspring will overcome sin and death. So establishing that context, he asks literally, what is this between me and thee? My hour is not yet come. Meaning, what would you have me do? And Jesus' statement about his hour suggests that he's not outright rejecting his mother's request, but rather considering that the timing may not be right. But Jesus understands that his first miracle will set him on the road to his passion. So this exchange doesn't diminish Mary's role in salvation history or her role as intercessor, quite the opposite. 
just look at what happens. Having interceded for the couple, Mary doesn't presume to give Jesus any orders. She just says to the waiters, do whatever he tells you. Mary had complete faith that whatever Jesus would do, it would be the best thing. And coincidentally, or um, I should mention that when we pray for, to, uh, for Mary to intercede for us with Jesus, we know that she will perfect our prayers and bring them into conformity with the divine will, and that whatever Jesus' answer is, it'll be the best thing for us too. All right, so what does Jesus do in this situation? He miraculously provides an abundance of wine performing his first miracle at the request of his Blessed Mother. And as Catholics, we understand this as foreshadowing the ongoing commemoration of his hour, where his bloody sacrifice on the cross is made sacramentally present at Holy Mass under the appearances of bread and, of course, wine. However, it, it can be difficult for some to discern the deeper meaning of this exchange, since various Bibles translate it differently. So we'll start with the Dewey Reams. And the wine failing, the mother of Jesus saith to him, they have no wine. And Jesus saith to her, woman, what is that to me and to thee? Literally, what to me and thee? My hour is not yet come. His mother saith to the waiters, whatsoever he shall say to you, do ye. This is hands down the most accurate English translation. Next, we have the translation from the New Catholic Bible, which has become kind of the default translation on this program. When the wine was exhausted, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus responded, woman, what concern is this to us? Now, the New Catholic Bible is, is highlighting the fact that this isn't a rhetorical question and that the answer will impact them both. Next is the New American Bible, which is the official Catholic translation for liturgy in the United States. When the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. And this translation highlights the different perspective. As Dr. Ted Sree puts it, Mary views providing more wine as a compassionate act of love towards the couple. And Jesus, on the other hand, uh, knows that if he provides more wine, it'll be his first public miracle and the beginning of his road to the cross. Our next step is the Catholic edition of the Revised Standard Version, which says, The mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O oh woman, what have you to do with me? Now, first, you should know that the words Standard Version are code for based on the King James Bible, <laughs> Catholic edition notwithstanding. And the RSV is a formal equivalence translation, but you can still hear the kind of condescending accent of the Reformation and the fact that the focus is taken off both the wine and Mary's concern for the couple to become instead, what have you to do with me? Okay, like Jesus and the demons, okay, please. The English Standard Version, ESV, isn't much better. Woman, what does this have to do with me? You know, not me, not me and thee, right? Just me, not me and thee. Again, removing a Mary, Mary from the equation and making his question sound at best like a dismissal. But among Bibles with a bishop's imprimatur, the Good News translation takes the cake. Now, this is an ecumenical translation by the American Bible Society, and it literally puts words into our Savior's mouth. When the wine had given out, Jesus' mother said to him, they are out of wine. You must not tell me what to do, Jesus replied. <laughs> it's worse than the demons here. He's like, he sounds like a petulant teenager. Mom, you can't tell me what to do. Right? 
Now, the case can be made that this uh, choice shows a bias against the Catholic understanding of Mary's role as intercessor, right? So the point being that these very different translations illustrate the problem that arises when translators um, don't try and communicate what the text actually says, what is this between me and thee, but rather what they think it means, which indicates that their translations are really interpretations. And by the way, if you keep reading John's Gospel, you'll find that Jesus calls Mary woman again uh, in chapter 19, this now at the end, and the climax of his earthly ministry. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So the disciple, as we know, is St. John. And Matthew 27, 56 tells us that the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that is John's natural mother, Salome, was also present at the foot of the cross. So when Jesus says to John, behold your mother, referring to Mary, his reference to Mary as the woman, as the new Eve, becomes plainly evident. You know, the first Eve was called mother of all the living because we're all descended from our first parents in the natural order. But Mary is the new Eve, the mother of all those who will enjoy everlasting life through her son. And so John represents us all at the foot of the cross when Jesus's hour has finally arrived, and he says, behold your mother. So the wedding at Cana reveals that Jesus's first miracle, which has worked in response to Mary's intercession, is a prophetic symbol of his hour, right? the hour that he died for the redemption of us all, and gave us his own blessed mother as his parting gift of love. The water turned to wine foreshadowed the miracle of transubstantiation that makes his hour present for us in the Holy Eucharist, as you will discover if you choose your Bible wisely. And that's no nonsense. All right, Lent. Lent is a penitential season, and it kicked off a week ago with uh, Mark's version of the temptation of Jesus. And so I think it's worth asking this Lent, what is temptation? And that's what we're going to be looking at in uh, when we come back from the break. Also, later on, going to be doing um, the, the rest of the Ten Commandments, the Bible study, and we're going to be looking at the second Sunday, the Gospel for the second Sunday of Lent. But speaking of temptation, um, the Church understands temptation as the experience of being enticed or lured towards something contrary to God's will, or that may lead to committing a sin. And temptation is a universal human experience. It can arise from various sources, including the influence of the world, our own disordered desires, what Scripture calls the flesh, and from the devil. The Catechism teaches that in this triple order, that is the world, the flesh, and the devil, the private and social dimensions of life come together. That's paragraph 2846. So in other words, we are fallen people living in a fallen world, and so our wounded human nature, combined with outside influences, make us vulnerable to temptation. When we come back, we're also going to find out what temptation is not. So stay with us, and we'll be back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We were talking about temptation, and I said before the break, it's well to remember what temptation is not. Temptation is not sinful in itself, and we know this because Jesus himself was tempted. However, while temptation is not a sin, yielding to temptation, that is, giving in to sinful desires, is. Temptation is what leads us to sin. So the Catechism explains that temptation becomes sin as soon as we freely consent to it and entertain sinful thoughts or engage in sinful actions. Like the old Baltimore Catechism says, we can sin in thought, word, or deed. And it's important to note that Jesus was fully human and really experienced temptation, but did not sin. So you and I are called to imitate Christ. And since Jesus is our model, his example shows us that it is possible to resist temptation and choose what's right and pleasing to God. <clears throat> Pardon me. So the temptation of Jesus was a period of testing that our Lord experienced in the desert before he began his public ministry. On the first Sunday of Lent this year, we read St. Mark's account of the temptation. And Mark's gospel is the, you know, has the briefest version of this event, doesn't even go into detail. But the Gospel accounts of Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 describe how Jesus, after his baptism, was led, or Mark says driven, by the Holy Spirit into the desert, where he fasted for 40 days and nights. And then the devil approached Jesus and presented him with three temptations. He fasted for 40 days, so he's hungry. And the first temptation involved the devil urging Jesus to turn stones into bread. To which our Lord responded, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. The second temptation involved the devil taking Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and suggesting that he throw himself down, relying on the angels to save him. And Jesus gives another scriptural response. Again, he says, It is written, You shall not test the Lord your God. And then in the third temptation, the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and promised him dominion over them if he would fall down and worship him. And Jesus replied, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, these temptations were aimed at, at challenging Jesus' identity as the Son of God and his mission to bring salvation to humanity. The devil sought to divert Jesus from his path of obedience and the Father's will and to lead him into sin. And Jesus resisted the temptations and remained faithful to his mission. How? Through an unwavering commitment to the Father and his reliance on the Word of God. And that's the example for us. Catechism teaches that Jesus' temptation in the desert reveal his solidarity with humanity as he underwent similar trials and temptations to those that we face. And by overcoming these temptations, Jesus shows us the way to resist temptation in our lives and remain faithful to God. Uh, temptation of Jesus is a significant event in the life of Christ, which shows us his perfect obedience uh, to the Father and his victory over the devil's temptations, which we are called to imitate. Paragraphs uh, 2848 and 2849 of the Catechism particularly emphasize the role of grace for us to overcome temptation. It's prayer, the sacraments, um, the assistance of the Holy Spirit that empowers Catholics like you and me to resist temptation and grow in holiness. 
God's sanctifying grace strengthens us, helps us to grow in holiness. His actual grace helps us to choose what's good and in accordance with his will. Now, no examination of temptation would be complete without looking at how our first parents were tempted. Adam and Eve were tempted in the Garden of Eden by the serpent, whom we understand to be the devil or Satan. The story of their temptation, uh, as I'm sure you know, is recounted in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And according to the biblical account, God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and had given them the freedom to enjoy all its fruits, except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent approached Eve and questioned God's command. He suggested that eating the forbidden fruit would make them like God, knowing good and evil. It's well to understand that the word to know in the Bible refers to an intimate experience, right? To know is often used as as a, a euphemism for sexual intercourse, right? Very intimate encounter. So they could only know evil in the biblical sense by committing sin, which of course makes you anything but like God. And so being the father of lies, the serpent deceives Eve. She ate the fruit, she gave some to Adam, and he also ate of it. So the Catechism teaches us that the serpent, the the devil, tempted Adam and Eve precisely by sowing doubt in their minds about God's goodness and about his commandments, and thereby sought to lead them into disobedience and pride by inciting the desire to be like God. Adam and Eve were tempted, as as are we, by, by the allure of gaining knowledge and power beyond what God has granted. They gave in, they succumbed to the temptation by choosing to disobey God's command and to seek uh, autonomy, to, to seek, you know, to be apart from him. And this act of disobedience, known as the original sin, had some profound consequences for humanity because it introduced sin and its effects into the world. And this temptation of Adam and Eve reveals the reality of the spiritual battle between good and evil, which is still going on. It is an ongoing struggle that we face Uh, to choose between God's will, on the one hand, and our own self-centered desires. And that highlights the importance of trust and obedience to God's commands. Temptation and the fall of Adam and Eve powerfully illustrates the consequences of giving in to temptation and choosing sin over God's will. But it also points to the need for redemption and the coming of Jesus Christ. O Felix culpa, O happy fault, right? Because Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, offers us the opportunity to be reconciled with God and to be victorious over the effects of sin. That's what it's all about. And what does that look like? Well, the Catholic Church teaches that to overcome temptation, we must rely on God's grace and actively engage in spiritual practices. And so, for your Lenten consideration, here are seven points Uh, from paragraphs 2846 through 2849 of the Catechism on how to resist and overcome temptation in your life. Number one, can you guess what it is? (laughs) Number one is prayer. It seems like prayer is always number one on these lists, but that's because prayer must always be our first response and not our last resort. It is a powerful tool in, in this context in overcoming temptation. Because by turning to God in prayer, we seek his guidance, his strength, his protection. Jesus himself taught his disciples and us to pray daily, lead us not into temptation. 
So through prayer, then, we acknowledge our dependence on God and invite him to help us to resist temptation. Number two is the sacraments, uh, particularly confession and the Holy Eucharist, which provide grace and spiritual nourishment to strengthen us in our battle against temptation. You know, the sacrament of reconciliation is so important, uh, especially during Lent, uh, it, because it allows us to confess our sins and be absolved of our guilt and to receive the grace to resist temptations in the future. And the Eucharist, of course, the source and the summit of the Christian life, unites us both spiritually and even physically with Christ and empowers us to live virtuously. Speaking of which, that's number three on the list, virtuous living. All Catholics are summoned to what the Catechism refers to, I mean, echoing Vatican II, the universal call to holiness. Because cultivating virtuous habits, uh, living according to God's commandments, is what helps us to resist temptation. In paragraph 1803 of the Catechism, it says, the virtuous man is he who freely practices the good. And, and that's the imitation of Christ. Right? The scripture says he went about doing good. So developing Christ-like virtues of humility and self-control and charity, we become better equipped to resist the allure of sin. Number four is avoiding the occasions of sin. And, you know, it's important to avoid, you know, situations, people, activities that might lead us into temptation. And this requires prudence and self-discipline. Because by removing ourselves from uh, circumstances or environments that might triggle uh, trigger, trigger sinful desires, we can reduce the likelihood of giving in to temptation. It's right in the act of contrition. I firmly resolve with the help of your grace to sin no more, to avoid the near occasion of sin. It's called a firm purpose of amendment. Unfortunately, today, it's almost impossible to avoid all the near occasions of sin. I mean, it is my sincere hope that this program inspires you to get closer to God and save your soul. I hope it helps me to that same end. But let's face it, the, the very device that you are using to listen to this program can itself be a near occasion of sin. The internet is, is chock full of, shall we say, less than edifying content. But many of us literally cannot earn our daily bread without the computer and the smartphone. And if you'll permit me a brief digression, shortly after my conversion, I bought a popular Catholic book of prayers, a book of Catholic prayers published by a Catholic book publishing company. And I have collected and used many prayer books since then, some you know, more traditional. But this is one that I always come back to, mostly for its features. It has all the most common prayers in common translations. It's in large, easy-to-read type. And it is a nice slim volume that I can slip into a coat pocket when I go to Mass or easily fit in a carry-on bag. So this little prayer book has traveled with me virtually all over the world. Now, I wore out my first two copies, and I'm on my third now. And uh, it's interesting to note that the prayer book has undergone a couple of changes over the years. And as you may suspect, I'm usually not crazy about change, especially in regard to the church. But some changes can be beneficial. Uh, the correction of the new Roman Missal in 2010 was a good change. And that's reflected in this latest edition of the prayer book. But there's another change that I noticed, and that was to the act of contrition. And reflecting our 21st century reality, the 
act of contrition in that prayer book no longer says, I firmly resolve to sin no more and avoid the near occasion of sin, but instead to sin no more and avoid the unnecessary occasions of sin. And like I said, I'm not crazy about change, but this one I can appreciate because some occasions of sin are unavoidable. And okay, so moving on then to another way to overcome temptation, and that is community and accountability. Surrounding yourself with a supportive community of fellow believers is a great way to provide encouragement and guidance and accountability in your struggle against temptation. And it's not just your parish community or even your family and friends, right? The people with whom you choose to associate or whom you are obliged to associate. But, uh, you know, other means of fellowship, too. We have at our uh, parish a a fellowship of St. Dismas, which is a, a men's group that help men to be accountable to one another. And it helps them to, you know, share their struggles and seek advice and receive support in a journey towards holiness. I hope this, uh, that you count this program, at least as a virtual kind of fellowship. I know that I do. All right, more on this when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholics right after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm sharing seven ways to overcome temptation. Got to number six here, which is vigilance and self-examination. You know, it is crucial to be vigilant, right? to be aware of our own weaknesses and vul- vulnerabilities. Vigilance is an important virtue. The motto on the Arnold family crest is, Ut vivas vigila, be watchful that you may live. Also, regularly examining your conscience, reflecting on your thoughts, words, and deeds can help you to identify those areas where you're prone to temptation. And it's this kind of self-awareness that enables you to take appropriate measures to either avoid or resist temptation. And then lastly, number seven, is trust in God's grace. Ultimately, overcoming temptation isn't uh, solely reliant on our own efforts, but on God's grace working within us. Trusting in God's love, mercy, and assistance allows us to rely on his strength rather than relying uh, entirely on our own willpower. So to overcome temptation then, Catholics are encouraged to engage in prayer, participate in the sacraments, cultivate virtuous living, avoid occasions of sin, seek community and accountability, practice self-examination, and trust in God's grace. These seven practices, combined with a sincere desire to follow God's will, can help you resist temptation and grow in holiness, and that's no nonsense. Okay, as promised, as long as we're listing things here, (laughs) the commandments, numbers 6 through 10 of my Ten Commandments of Catholic Bible Study. We did the first five last week. Thou shalt pray before you read. Thou shalt read the Bible in the spirit in which it was written. Thou shalt read the Bible in and with the church. The catechism shall be thy first and best Bible study aid, and thou shalt choose thy Bible wisely. And now commandment number six, thou shalt not contradict tradition. Now virtually all Christians accept the Bible as the inspired word of God. Uh, Many non-Catholics to the point that they affirm the Bible alone is the sole rule of faith. But Catholics know that there's a lot that's not explicitly in Scripture. 
Furthermore, the Bible doesn't interpret itself. Scripture does not even tell us which books actually belong in the Bible. Even for that, you have to turn to the tradition of the Catholic Church. And sacred tradition is divine truth handed down to the Church by Jesus or by the apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So although not all sacred tradition has been committed to writing in the form of the inspired books, it still has the same weight as the Bible because it too contains God's revelation to man. Second Vatican Council put it this way in Dei Verbum number 10, sacred tradition and sacred scripture form one sacred deposit of the Word of God committed to the Church. Bible didn't fall from the sky. It was written, compiled, preserved, explained, and applied to life for over 20 centuries by the Catholic Church. And how do we encounter that tradition today? Through the liturgy, uh, the writings of the fathers and doctors of the Church, especially the, the doctrines, the dogmas, and the creeds formulated by the popes and councils. So, in other words, uh, via the magisterium of the Church. The magisterium is not a source of divine revelation, but it represents the sure teaching of the Church on divine revelation. Therefore, no sense or meaning may be attributed to any passage of the Bible that is contrary to the solemn or the ordinary and universal magisterium. Now, unfortunately, the Church's infallible teachings on the Bible are sometimes openly questioned or even outright contradicted, and even by so-called Catholic scholars. And that's a real scandal. Our Lord himself said to the apostles, He who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Or in Matthew, uh, that was Luke 10, 16, or in Matthew 18, 17, where he says that if a person refuses to listen to the church, teach him as, treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. That is like an outsider, someone anathema, accursed. So following magisterial teaching on Scripture is crucial, but where do you and I find that? Where do we find it expressed? You know, over the centuries, the magisterium has produced many official documents and decisions concerning the Holy Bible. But as I mentioned last week, you will find those teachings well synthesized where? In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 74 through 141. Those paragraphs provide a sure guide for overcoming confusion and dissent. Uh, St. John Paul II uh, said that uh, to survive the third millennium with your faith intact, you have to study and meditate on Scripture and the Catechism, that's Scripture and tradition. Okay? We don't believe in Scripture alone, but in Scripture and tradition guided by the magisterium. All right, the seventh commandment of Catholic Bible study, remember thou, the Bible doth not contradict itself. Back in the 16th century, old Martin Luther read Romans 3.28 in a brand new way. For we maintain that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Amen. From these words uh, of St. Paul, Luther formulated his infamous doctrine of sola fide, or salvation by faith alone. Uh, according to Luther, Paul was teaching that good works are not at all necessary for justification, that is, for salvation. Catholics rightly objected to this rather narrow interpretation by citing a passage from the Epistle of St. James. You can see, then, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's James 2.24. 
In fact, the only place in the Bible where the words faith and alone appear together, the words not by are right in front of them. But Luther saw a contradiction between James 2.24 and Romans 3.28 and concluded on his own authority that the book of James must not really be inspired after all and should therefore, quote, be consigned to the flames if it was continued to use to be used against him. See, obviously Catholics understand that St. James does not contradict St. Paul, but only Luther's all-too-fallible interpretation of St. Paul. In Romans 3.28, Paul's referring to the works of the Old Testament law, and two verses later he cites circumcision as an example. Also elsewhere in Romans, Paul writes, By your stubbornness and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of wrath and revelation of the just judgment of God, who will repay everyone according to his works. Eternal life to those who seek glory, honor, and immortality through perseverance in good works, but wrath and fury to those who selfishly disobey the truth and obey wickedness. It's pretty obvious that if the faith really ruled out uh, faith rather really ruled out the necessity of good works for justification, Paul would be contradicting himself, and that's absurd. Paul's certainly not teaching that you can work your way to heaven, but that you must cooperate with God's grace, who requires faith working through love, as he says in Galatians. Now, notwithstanding, certain uh, modern scriptural skeptics have been compiling lists of these supposed contradictions in the Bible for more than a century. And these challenges typically fall into a few broad categories. So verses taken out of context, faulty interpretations, even willful misrepresentation of the text. But Catholics have the assurance of the Church that properly understood there can be no contradictions in the Bible because a contradiction is a nonsense. But God is the author of sacred scripture. And according to De Verbum, quoted in the Catechism, paragraph 105, Holy Mother Church, relying on the faith of the apostolic age, accepts as sacred and canonical the books of the Old and the New Testaments, whole and entire, with all their parts, on the grounds that written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the Church herself. Sacred scriptures have God as their author, and as we all know, God can neither deceive nor be deceived. Therefore, a Catholic faced with an apparent biblical uh, contradiction should recall the words of St. Augustine. If we are perplexed by an apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken. But either the manuscript is faulty, or the translation is wrong, or you have misunderstood. And if Martin Luther had kept this in mind, and he was an Augustinian priest after all, then perhaps modern Christendom wouldn't be fragmented into tens of thousands of rival sects, all claiming to follow the Bible as the sole rule of faith, even as they contradict one another. Now, number eight is thou shalt commit Bible verses to memory. Think for a moment about our Lord. When he was being tempted by the devil, he quoted scripture. When he praised John the Baptist, he quoted scripture. When he drove the buyers and sellers out of the temple, he quoted scripture. When he predicted that the world would hate his disciples as it had hated him, he quoted scripture. He even quoted scripture from the cross. 
Now, some Catholics seem to think that memorizing Scripture is just for Protestant, but this could not be further from the truth. And consider the fact that generations of Catholic children had to memorize a whole catechism. Uh, in the Middle Ages, when books were rare and expensive, medieval monks memorized virtually the whole book of Psalms to sing the divine office. Scholars memorized an entire university education. Memorization has a long Catholic tradition. Also, there's many instances that you will find where, where a verse of Scripture can powerfully minister to you in your own life, but only if you know it, as we said when I was a child, by heart. Finally, remember that as a Catholic, you already know lots of Scripture. Maybe not chapter and verse, but as I uh, said last week, many of the prayers and responses at Holy Mass are taken directly from the Bible. The Hail Mary is con uh, composed of two verses of the Scripture from Luke. The Our Father represents five verses from Matthew. The Apostles' Creed is far longer than, than most any biblical passage you're likely to commit to memory. And yet you have those all memorized. So to quote Scripture, be not afraid. Uh, commandment number nine, thou shalt be realistic. Starting a habit of regular Bible studies, like going on a diet or going to the gym, or making other any other change in your lifestyle. You need to be realistic, and you need to recognize that it requires dedication, discipline. Try and take on too much too soon, you'll likely get discouraged and quit. Therefore, resolve to devote only as much time to Bible studies you realistically think you can maintain on an ongoing basis. All right? And when we come back, we will have the final, number 10 on the Ten Commandments of Catholic Bible Study, and lots more as we continue with No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. About that, I was uh, <laughs> didn't realize that I was gone longer than the break lasted. I apologize. All right, uh, we we um, before the break, we we're talking about the ninth commandment of Catholic Bible study: Thou shalt be realistic. And I said that you should resolve to devote only as much time to Bible study as you realistically think you can maintain on a continuing basis. Now, if that means just reading for a few minutes first thing in the morning or on your lunch break, uh, that's great. If it means attending a weekly Bible study at your parish or studying with family and friends, that's fine too. Many Catholics find that reflecting on the Sunday readings either before or after Mass is the best place to start. Now, we do that on this program every week. We will in just a minute because that's a realistic way to begin your habit of Catholic Bible study. All right, and last but not least, number 10, thou shalt apply what thou hast read. I often refer to reading the Bible existentially, uh, meaning applying it to yourself. Because if you don't apply the truth that you discover in Scripture to your own life, then your Bible study is really just a hobby. Application is where the rubber meets the road and it's the fruit of prayerful reflection. Remember, St. Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, and for training in uprightness. Why? So that the man of God may be proficient and equipped for good work of every kind. See, the Bible doesn't just give us information about God. It helps us to live in right relationship with God and with each other. So after reading and reflecting on a Bible passage, it's time to ask, how does this apply to my life today, to my situation at home or, or at work or at school or, or at church? 
Consulting the Catechism, by the way, is invaluable in this regard. And I remember that St. Jerome said, we talk to God when we pray, and he answers when we read the Bible. If we cooperate with his grace, the Holy Spirit can use this dialogue with the Scriptures to shape our lives in the direction of greater holiness, so that we may be more Christ-like. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, because it's only when we apply Scriptures to our lives that the Bible comes alive and truly becomes God's word to us today. And that's no nonsense. All right. To close out today, we're going to look at the gospel for the second Sunday of Lent this year, taken from Mark 9, verses 2 through 10. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And in their presence, he was transfigured. His clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. And Elijah and Moses appeared, conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were so frightened. And then a cloud cast a shadow over them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Therefore, they kept the matter to themselves, although they did argue about what rising from the dead could possibly mean. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 554, from the day Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Master began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter scorns this prediction, nor do the others understand it any better than he. In this context, the mysterious episode of Jesus' transfiguration takes place on a high mountain before three witnesses chosen by Jesus himself, Peter, James, and John. Jesus' face and clothes become dazzling with light. Moses and Elijah appear, speaking of his, of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. A cloud covers him, and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So the transfiguration is, is a pivotal event in Jesus' ministry. It occurs after Peter's confession of faith in, in Jesus as the Christ and serves as a confirmation of Jesus' divinity and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. During the transfiguration, Jesus' appearance is transformed. His face and clothes become dazzling white, revealing his divine glory. Then Moses and Elijah appear, representing the law and the prophets, and speak with Jesus about his upcoming passion and death in Jerusalem, which emphasizes the continuity between the Old Testament prophecies and Jesus' mission. Remember, he said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. Also, it's interesting to me that we know from 2 Kings chapter 2 that Elijah was assumed bodily into heaven. But what about Moses? See, it may be that Moses was likewise assumed. Uh, this is the contention of an apocryphal book from the first century called The Assumption of Moses. Now, I'm not in any way vouching for the contents of that book, just pointing out that there was a first-century Jewish tradition that Moses was assumed into heaven. 
And the transfiguration seems to justify that tradition. Uh, and it goes a long way towards explaining Jude, verse 8, where the Bible speaks of the archangel Michael disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. And this interpretation allows for connecting the, the two witnesses of Revelation, chapter 10, with the gospel. Now, you know, some early Christian writers like Tertullian, Irenaeus, and Hippolytus of Rome conjectured that the two witnesses of Revelation, who would appear at the end times, would be Enoch and Elijah, the two prophets who, who didn't die because God took them up to heaven. But I think Moses makes an interesting candidate for one of the two witnesses, precisely because he and Elijah have already appeared at Mount Tabor, representing the law and the prophets. And John, the author of the book of Revelation, was there. Be that as it may, uh, the cloud now covers Jesus during the transfiguration, symbolizing the presence of God and echoing the cloud that covered the Israelites during the Exodus and that came down on the uh, Ark of the Covenant in the, in the, in the desert. Uh, the voice from heaven, voice of God the Father, affirms Jesus as his son and commands the disciples to listen to him um, as the, the voice of the Father was heard at his baptism. And then Jesus told Peter, James, and John not to speak about what they'd seen until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Why? Because they wouldn't fully understand until after his resurrection. In fact, they wouldn't really understand until after his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. But at this point, I mean, it was natural for the disciples to be confused about Jesus' death and resurrection because they could not see into the future. We, on the other hand, as, I, as we've been talking about for two weeks now, we have scripture, we have tradition, we have the magisterium of the church to help us receive the full meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the transfiguration then serves as a moment of revelation and preparation for the disciples as they witness Jesus' divine glory and receive confirmation of his, his identity as the Son of God. It also foreshadows the resurrection, as uh, you know, Jesus' glorified appearance anticipates his victory over death. Further, the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, connect this episode with our Lord's coming in glory at the end of all things, and the two witnesses in the 10th chapter of the book of Revelation. So overall, then, the transfiguration affirms Jesus' divinity. It connects him to the Old Testament prophecies. It shows how they are fulfilled in him and prepares the disciples, and hopefully you and me, for the challenges that they and we, you know, that they would face in the future and that we will face in the future, including the final judgment, which applies to us all. And that's no nonsense. All right, thank you for being with us uh, again. You know, next week we'll, we'll do the, the next Sunday in Lent. I'm going to talk about some other things. going to talk about mortification. And, and how does that fit? With you know, uh, with love of neighbor, and with a proper love for yourself, right? This this season of penitence, and you know, our voluntarily uh, giving things up that are lawful, and how it helps to strengthen us to uh, you know then avoid things that are not lawful. All right, all that and 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 more coming up next week. Uh, before we close out today, I want to remind you that. I'm sorry, but the Spiritual Warfare Conference for 2024 coming up this uh, March, this, this next month, is sold out. It's been sold out. I'm sorry. There are no 
scholarships. There's no uh, uh, volunteer positions available. It's just, you know, it, it's full. Full's full. Okay. However, the good news is that you may go to the website and sign up for the uh, live stream, which will give you not only access to watching it live, but then you will also uh, have access to the recordings. So you don't have to watch it as it happens, although you can watch it as it happens. And uh, then after it's over, you can watch it again if you feel like it or, or watch it at, um, you know, at a, at a time that's the most convenient to you or to watch the, the talks that you're the most interested in and so forth. That's a, you know, um, Modern technology, like I say, it's uh, it can be an occasion of sin, but it's also been a great boon for things just like this to be able to to virtually attend this conference, even though you won't be able to physically be there. And uh, whether you're able to attend or not, to be able to go back and listen to these talks again and again and make a study of you know what is communicated there. Father Ripperger, um, the um, Guys from Libra Cristo, uh, Dr. Dan and Kyle Clement. Jesse Romero is going to be there as MC, and it's confirmed that uh, Bishop Strickland will be with us also. So, uh, like I say, even though you may not be able to attend in person, these are all things that you will be able to experience as it happens, if you choose, uh, via the live stream. Okay, so that's all of that. The, the final thing I want to say, as always, that we appreciate you. I appreciate you guys listening to this program. I really do. Uh, my comments earlier about this being a, a matter of fellowship for me and a way to help me to, um, you know, go to heaven. I'm, I'm sincere about that. And I hope that that's the case with you as well. And I, I very sincerely appreciate your prayers for me and for this apostolate for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And, you know, we are in desperate need. We have to, you know, we, we're never going to get anywhere without your prayers. But we are also in need uh, of your financial support if you're able to give it. You know, we, we uh, cast our bread upon the waters with these programs. You know, we have uh, three programs every single day running live on radio and on the uh, Internet, on the podcast platforms available, uh, you know, uh, whenever you want them. And uh, we, we give them free, but they're not free to produce. So if you can help us out, we really do appreciate it. And remember that we're praying for you every day at Holy Mass at the Sacred Chapel, Sacred Heart Chapel here in Covina. Uh, and anyway, until next time, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family. And look forward to next time. <laughs> <laughs>